0: Father, we do ask that you would speak now as we come before you, as we come to your word. God, that we would have our minds renewed uh, by your word and by your spirit. God, give us eyes to see how you are at work in our midst. Help us, uh, God, to submit ourselves to your word, to submit ourselves to you, knowing that you see everything and you know us through and through. God, may your word pierce our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. You can stay standing. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just for the reading, I'm not going to make you stand while I preach. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 4, as you will see there in your worship guide, it looks a little weird. We're reading verse 6, and then we're reading verses 11 to 13. Um, If you were here last week, I explained that verses 7 through 10 are kind of a parentheses uh, in between verses 6 and 11, so you'll you'll see. I'll read verse 6, and then we'll jump down to verse 11. We'll see how those flow together. Uh, We'll mainly be focusing on verses 12 and 13 this morning, but I wanted to read... Uh, all four of these verses for some context here. So please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Eric Arthur Blair was born in 1903. actually he was born in India, but he moved uh, back to England, where his parents were from, shortly after that, uh, spent most of his life in England. He was a teacher and a writer, uh, but he did leave England in the mid-1930s to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War, where he was wounded by taking a sniper bullet to the throat uh, that he somehow survived. He returned to England, and he continued his writing career under the pen name George Orwell. His last and most well-known book was published in 1949, just before his death in 1950, at the age of 46. That book, as you can probably guess, is 1984. It was written mostly in response to the Nazi regime and the stalinist regime in russia those totalitarian regimes it tackles issues like big brother the thought police and mass surveillance among many other things but these words specifically and concepts have just become kind of a normal part of our common vernacular you say the word big brother and everybody kind of knows what you're talking about right well obviously orwell was way ahead of his time in one sense Um, not sure that he could have Imagine that we would have the type of technology that we actually have today that is able to create the horrifying mass surveillance systems like what is going on in China right now to control and suppress its people. I think while we must rightly respond in opposition to this type of totalitarian control, the extreme opposite response of this is also not appropriate for the people of God. What do I mean by that? Well, if we argue for complete freedom and autonomy, answering to no one and being accountable to no one but ourselves, we are also in great danger. And there may be unique challenges in our day surrounding these issues because of the pervasiveness of technology. However, these are not new challenges. We can go all the way back to our first parents who tried to hide from God after they disobeyed him. Then they tried to cover up their own shame and their own nakedness so that God would not see it. But God did see, and God always sees. We cannot hide from God and his word. That is what the author of Hebrews is trying to remind us of here in these verses. We must confess that we are just as prone to attempt to run from God and to cover up our sin, to cover up our guilt and our shame as Adam and Eve were in the garden. Or as the people of Israel were in this wilderness generation that we've been looking at the last couple chapters since the middle of chapter 3. Or as the original recipients of this letter obviously must have been, that's why the author is addressing it here, right? Or as all Christians have been throughout the ages. It's not some new temptation to try to hide from God, to try to cover up what we have done and what what we think and what we do. Scripture is filled with reminders of the typical human response to the reality that God sees and that God knows everything fully. Speaking of the wicked in Psalm 10 verse 11, the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. In Psalm 73, verse 11, we're told that the wicked asks, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And then in Psalm 94, verse 7, the wicked says, The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And immediately following that statement, the psalmist responds to this lie that God does not see with these words. Understand, O dullest of the people, Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Well, so what does all of this have to do then with our passage here in Hebrews chapter 4? Again, the past two weeks we've seen from uh, chapter 3, verse 7 up to chapter 4, verse 11, we've seen the emphasis on this wilderness generation who did not listen to God, they did not obey God and his word, they didn't believe him, and we're told that they failed to enter God's rest because of that unbelief. And we looked at last week, what, what is God's true rest? We saw that it's not entrance into the promised land of Canaan. While there was rest from their enemies in a a temporal sense, uh, this was not the true rest that God was, the ultimate rest that God was pointing forward to. As we mentioned last week, this rest of God, this true rest of God is a future destination of unthreatened and uninterrupted communion with God. That is the goal in verses 6 and 11 that we are to strive for striving to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience it is not striving to enter into an actual physical place of rest but it is a future destination of unthreatened and uninterrupted communion with God so that is the question for us how can we do what verse verse 6 and verse 11 are calling us to do striving, again, as we mentioned last week, striving not by our own strength, but by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, striving to enter God's rest so that we may not fall by the same sort of disobedience as the wilderness generation that although they heard God's word, they did not believe and they did not obey. So that's what we're going to consider this morning as we look at two things. If you're taking notes, these are kind of our two main points answering the question, how can we do what verse 6 and 11 are calling us to do to to strive to enter God's rest? First, we must recognize the power and effectiveness of God's word. We must recognize the power and effectiveness of God's word. And second, which we'll get to in a little little bit, uh, we must humbly submit ourselves to his examining work. So we must recognize the power and effectiveness of God's word and we must humbly submit ourselves to his examining work. First, we must recognize the power and effectiveness of God's word. The first word in the original language here in verse 12 is the word living. Now it's emphatically placed at the beginning of this sentence to remind us of the power of God's living word. And the phrase here, the word of God, is a very common phrase in the New Testament. It can refer to the gospel message as a whole. As we read in Acts, the word of God continued to increase and continued to multiply. And that's clearly referring to the impact that God's word had on the lives of people that it, had, it was having on the culture of that day. It was having an actual impact on the world. We also take it to mean this phrase, the word of God. We, we take it to mean the whole body of God's revealed truth that we have in the 66 books of the Bible, which is not just a collection of a bunch of writings thrown together that are comparable to other ancient writings that might have been you know, similar or around that time. God's word is alive because its author is alive. This is not like the way that we interact with any other type of writing. I'm currently reading a book called The River of Doubt, uh, which is about Theodore Roosevelt's journey into the Amazon. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating book. There's a lot of interesting people who are on this journey with him, and you know, there's this Brazilian guy, this kind of native Brazilian guy uh, who's from a, like a, a native tribe who has lived this like fascinating military life. and. And his philosophy and Roosevelt's philosophy kind of clashed with each other, but they, they kind of learned to get along. And, and you're just like, man, I, want, I would love to just sit down with these guys and talk through this, right? Like, how does, how does your way of doing these things and your way of doing this like, how do you guys hash this out and how do you work together? But I can't do that, right? They're both dead. They've been dead for a long time. I don't have the ability to sit down and say, how did you guys make this thing work? And it's the same thing. We can't go and ask George Orwell right? What, is, what his thoughts are on how some of the things he wrote about a long time ago right, are actually playing out in horrendous ways today. It would be fascinating to sit down and see what he thought and like, could you have really imagined that it would be like this? But we can't do that, right? Because he's also been dead for a long time. But we can do that with God, right? We can interact with God. We can talk with God about his written word We can pray and we can ask him questions. We can seek wisdom from the Holy Spirit as we read because God's word is alive because the author of his word is alive. He is alive. Jesus told us that his sheep hear his voice and he wasn't just talking about the disciples who walked with him in the flesh. We hear his voice today through his word because it is alive This is why we have such a strong emphasis on preaching at Living Stone. God's word is alive. You don't come here to listen to, exactly, proving my point. You don't come here to listen to, I didn't do that on purpose. You don't come here to listen to polished speeches by professional orators. We are not that. If you want that, like, go listen to a TED Talk or, you know, go to some church where the guy went to school for speaking or whatever that's not us okay we're not polished we're not trying to be fancy here we come because we hear God's word God's word is alive God speaks and he speaks through imperfect vessels like us next God's word is effective the ESV translates this word active it can mean active or powerful or effective the word in the original is the word energeis you can probably guess what word we get from that, right? Energy, okay? It's active. It's, ener- it's energy. It actually does something when we read it. It does something when we hear it. It changes us. It's alive. It's active. It's, there's energy in God's word. Not in some weird, you know, Eastern mystical sense, but God's word is powerful and Effective. And these two characteristics, living and active, they go hand in hand. And they describe the ability of the word of God to do what God alone can do. That is the emphasis here as we are told that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. This isn't meant here to evoke invoke the same imagery as Ephesians 6 verse 17 where we are told that we are to take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. That's not what it's talking about here. The author of Hebrews is not speaking of this actively in a sense that this is our weapon that we yield as we fight against sin and the evil one. It is God's weapon that he wields against us. And God uses his word to pierce us deeply into the deepest parts of our being. Like the precision of a surgeon's scalpel. God's word penetrates so deeply and so thoroughly into our souls that it even brings judgment upon the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. The word here for discerning in the ESV has the root word, same root word as the word for judgment. The word in the Greek is kritikos. It's where we get the word critic or critical. God's word judges us like a critic. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Think about this for a moment. No one else can truly know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we can't ever truly know the thoughts and intentions of someone else's heart. Someone might tell you, this is my intention, right? But you don't know if their intention is actually to deceive you by telling you their intention is something else. Like, you can't ever know that. You can trust someone, you can believe someone, but at the end of the day, we can never fully know the thoughts and intentions of someone else's heart. And I think many times we don't even truly understand our own thoughts and intentions, right? We're like, how, like why did I think that? Or how did, I, how did I want that to happen to that person, right? Like, that's horrible. But God does. God knows them. And he sees them. And he justly judges them. And this can be a terrifying reality. But for the one who seeks to know the Lord and to be known by him, This is actually a great comfort. We can pray like David in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, where he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a bold prayer. This is a prayer that is prayed by someone who understands and recognizes the power and the effectiveness of God's word. Someone who is ready to be cut to the heart, to have the thoughts and intentions of their heart judged by God. This is a dangerous prayer. (laughs) If you pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting, look out. (laughs) Because he will. He will do it. Are we in that place today? Can we honestly say that this is a good thing? And can we pray this prayer with confidence knowing that God sees and knows it all? Can we submit ourselves to God and let him pierce the deepest parts of our soul with the truth of his word? If you are a Christian today, this should not ultimately be a terrifying thought. It might feel uncomfortable, but it will not ultimately wreck you because God has ultimately dealt with your sin already at the cross. There is nothing hidden way deep down that Christ has not already paid for with his blood. And if you are not a Christian, this probably is a terrifying thought to you. I'm not trying to scare you, but you have to realize That submitting yourself to God and to his word is the only way that your deepest sins and that your deepest hurts can get dealt with. God already knows everything that is going on in your life and it is no use continuing trying to cover it up. Which brings us to our second point. We must humbly submit ourselves to his examining work. Our author shifts here from talking about God's word in verse 12 to talking about God himself in verse 13. If verse 12 gets our attention, verse 13 should completely stop us in our tracks. No creature is hidden from his sight. God sees it all. There is nowhere for us to run where he will not find us. He saw Adam and Eve when they tried to hide from him in the garden. And he has seen sinful men and women throughout history who have said in their hearts, like those in Psalm 10, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. I may have shared this story before. Uh, it's, I, if I have, it's been a while. Uh, when I was in grade school, I had an experience of running and not being trying to run and not being able to hide uh so i li- i my mom worked nights so i stayed with my grandma a lot and she lived kind of wasn't a huge town but it was kind of on the other side of town from where the school was and so we'd walk Uh, kind of through the small downtown area, Uh, there was like a bar there, and then there was this building that I don't, there wasn't even anything in it at the time, it had been boarded up for a while, and kind of in this alley between the bar and this building, there was a whole bunch of old windows that were already like broken, you know, and just we were walking and we're like oh hey let's just you know finish the job so my buddy jared and i like were picking up like batteries and rocks and we're like throwing them at these windows and breaking them and we're like this is so cool and um thinking you know no one's ever gonna find out we're kind of like tucked away in this alley and so then finished our job and kept walking his house was like a block away from my grandma's so he goes home and i go home to my grandma's house and uh probably, I don't know how much longer it was, you know, maybe within the hour, I see the cop car pull in the the driveway, and I'm like, oh shoot, I'm in trouble, and uh, so I go flying into my grandma's bedroom, and under the bed, I knew this hiding place from before, so there, she had like this old, uh, like the headboard was this big thing with like, you know, doors in it, and it was all empty up in the back so I go in there and I like crawl up inside of this thing (laughs) and I hear Pete Yagi the the town the only cop in town town of like 800 people he comes in and I hear him talking to my grandma I'm like there's no way he's gonna find me right like I'm I'm good (laughs) he comes in and he's like Josh come out you know I'm just like terrified and he sits me down and has this talk with me and I don't even remember what ended up happening I should ask my mom I don't think we had to like pay for the windows or anything but um yeah anyways but I could not hide right like I thought I could he's not gonna see me I can get away like I can get away with this nope no dice and that was just me trying to hide from one human authority right from one person who was not all-seeing who was not all-knowing how much less then are we able to hide from the all-seeing and all-knowing God who sees it all who knows it all and from whom There is no hope of hiding. Well, as if this reality of not being able to hide were not enough, our author adds to the intensity of the situation by highlighting two more things in the second half of verse 13. That we are naked and exposed. Now this is two separate ideas here, but they really go together. Again, being naked should cause us to remember the opening chapters of our Bible. After the account of the creation of Adam and Eve, we read in the last verse of Genesis 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This was God's original creation design. But then notice the interaction between God and Adam and Eve after they ate of the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3 beginning in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God knew where he was. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is the reality of the effects of sin. We are uncovered before the Lord, and we constantly seek ways to cover our own guilt and our own shame. The next thing is being exposed, and this is a similar idea. But this carries a bit of a different kind of emphasis and nuance. This word here has to do with twisting of the neck. It can refer to a wrestler grabbing his opponent by the neck, but it can also refer to the twisting back of the neck of an animal before it is about to be sacrificed. It's, it's this idea of being laid bare. Now, either way, it is basically speaking of being in a vulnerable position. So, naked and exposed, right? That's just a, being completely vulnerable before the Lord. And then the final part of verse 13 here drives these truths home and it ties it all back to the argument. Again, that's being made in verses 6 and 11 regarding not falling by the same sort of disobedience as those in the wilderness generation. And that is that we will ultimately give an account to the one from whom we cannot hide and before whom we are naked and exposed. In other words, there is no escaping God's judgment. His word pierces us and judges. He sees and he knows and he judges. Therefore... Let us strive to enter his rest so that we will not fall by the same sort of disobedience. That is the message here in these verses. Now, if we simply stopped here, that would feel like an impossible and crushing task. The weight of judgment and the burden of our own sins that exposes us before God, the secret idolatries of our hearts that only God sees, that others cannot see, but we know that God sees. But we are not left without hope. The reality of the all-seeing eye of God is not meant to be a crushing burden for the people of God. The wicked should fear, but we should stand in awe. We should stand in awe that despite our outward sin and rebellion that is seen by God and by others and despite our inward thoughts that God alone sees, that his grace grace is sufficient for those who are in Christ. Christ is the only way that verses 12 and 13 are good news. If you read those verses in isolation, that is not good news. Christ is the reason why they are good news for us, because he is our great high priest, whose work on our behalf we are going to be looking at very closely beginning next week as we start looking at in chapter 4 verse 14 and following all the way through chapter 10 as we're going to spend many months uh, in chapter 4 through 10 looking at how Christ is our great high priest. And it is because of Jesus, it is because of him, our great high priest, that we have an invitation to come to the table this morning. It's because of him that this table is open. It's because of him that we are not cut off from our sin because of our sin, cut off from him because of our sin. It's because of him that we are not left naked and exposed. It is because of him that we need not fear giving an account before God. In fact, he is the one who will ultimately give an account for us. Yes, we will each give an account for the deeds that we have done in this life on the last day. But when the books are opened on Judgment Day, what Christ has done for us in our place as our great high priest, that will fully and finally settle our account before God. The good news this morning, as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, is that we don't have to wait until Judgment Day to know that our account with God has been settled. Again, yes, there will be that full and final reckoning. But we can be certain now. We can be certain now that through faith in Christ and in Christ alone, our sin has been dealt with and our debt has been paid and our account has been settled, paid in full. It is with that confidence that I invite you to come to this table and to partake and to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. If you can say yes and amen to that. If you can say yes, I trust in Christ and I'm I'm willing to let his word cut to the heart and pierce me. I'm willing to be fully subject to God's all-seeing eye. To know that I'm I'm naked and exposed before him, right? And I must give an account to him. If you can say that with confidence because you are in Christ, then then this table is open for you. And if you're not yet there, if you say I'm not I'm not willing, I'm not willing to open up my heart to Christ. I'm not willing to let him examine me. Then this table is not yet for you. This is a time for all of us to come under that, that sword, to come under that examination. So before we come to the table, I'd like to take uh, some moments for us again to examine our hearts before the Lord Take some time to examine your hearts in silence before the Lord, and then we will proceed.